Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We're here today with um, the guys from Conic Metal. So we've got Anthony Maluski. We've got Martin Vidra. Well, thanks a lot for having us back. Thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. always a pleasure. It's been a while. And we saw each other back in June. Yeah, it's been a few months. Yeah, so you've been pretty, pretty busy, but we're now in the nickel space. Wanted to talk to you today about where you think nickel's going and maybe help people understand the, the future of nickel because it's a fairly erratic metal or has been these sort of super cycles, but I think people are quite excited about this ED revolution and what nickel's going to do. Yeah, so no, it's, it's definitely, I think, the most exciting uh, time nickel's really seen since really the big China build out you know, over a decade ago. Mm. And you know what's driving our interest in nickel is really the evolution of the battery chemistry. Mm. And just to kind of remind people, you know, when we talk about batteries for electric vehicles and also for stationary batteries, in large part you're talking about a nickel manganese cobalt chemistry. Mm. And you know, depending on the battery type in use today, you're probably looking at a 532 mix of chemistry, five being nickel, you know, the cobalt, and then you've got um, the manganese. And what's happening is we're transitioning towards a battery which is ultimately going to be 811, meaning eight parts nickel, one part uh, manganese, one part cobalt. And, and frankly, in, in the coming decade, it will probably transition even further. Mm. And so as we see this electrification thematic rollout, not only with cars, but also with battery storage in general as it pertains to lithium-ion battery, you're going to have a huge crunch on the nickel market. And it's really a specific type of nickel that's used in batteries. And, and um, you know, there are two nickel markets today. There is uh, a ferro-nickel market, which is effectively your steel, your steel industry. And then there is a second nickel market, which is really the nickel that goes into chemicals, batteries. Uh, and so it's an interesting time. And, and actually, it's a confusing time because the, the nickel run that we're seeing today it's actually not driven by electric vehicles at all. It's actually driven by, you know, in part regulatory situations in Indonesia and some buying out of China. So on the one hand, we're getting all this excitement about around nickel, but it's actually not the excitement that we're playing on, which is this future demand that we're seeing coming from electric vehicles. So you guys have come out of the royalty and streaming. I mean, obviously, Cobalt 27 yeah. was royalty and streaming business. Uh, Comic Metals, royalty and streaming business. You're, obviously, Cobalt did what it did. There was, a, you know, it kind of spiked, came back down again, you know, if you, for whatever reason, the market. What, is, what, you, what was the reason? The yeah, look, there, there are really two simple reasons why that happened. I think yeah. the first one was we saw a destocking in China of mm -hmm. cobalt inventories, mm -hmm. and simultaneously with that, we saw a huge spike in artisanal supply out of Congo. Right. And and you know, there's a lot of conversation around that, but I would say you know, some of that is tainted with child labor, and some of it isn't. Mm -hmm. And so you had both of those things happen simultaneously. And you know you took cobalt from forty-four dollars all the way back down to twelve. Now, ultimately, the outlook for cobalt is still incredibly bullish. It's just that over the next couple of years, uh, the market needs to work out uh, ethical sourcing. It's a major, major issue with cobalt. It needs to work out how to handle that artisanal supply as the demand comes in. So, you know, we're still bullish cobalt. We still have cobalt exposure in in each of our royalties today and, and our uh, joint venture interest. It's just that you know, from our perspective. Nickel over the next few years is going to be a more liquid market, a deeper market, and a market probably more impacted ultimately by the demand that's coming. Right. Okay. So, I mean, let, let's let's talk about this now because thank you for the explanation about the nickel market, and people need to 
get either get behind that thesis or not, and then make the investment decisions as to whether nickel something they want to get into. And perhaps we can get into a bit more detail further further into this conversation. But Cobalt Twenty Seven had a sort of tumultuous rise, rapid ascent. You built that up into something quite meaningful, but mainly based on the price of cobalt, right? And it, it's, it came back down. So there are some difficulties which you foresaw. And is that what drove the uh, move to you know, conic metals with, with parlor? I mean, what was the thinking behind it? What was what's going on in the head there when you made that decision? Yeah, ultimately, we didn't make that decision. I mean, shareholders, and in particular minority shareholders, made the decision to sell the company. You know? um, the reality is that we had declining liquidity, mm-hmm. and Paula Investments came in and bought 20% of the company mm-hmm. and put an offer to shareholders. Uh, you know, that wasn't the plan from the outset. Uh, that's the way it developed. And, you know, I think sometimes it gets lost on some of our, our shareholders, in particular some of the minority shareholders, that, you know, they've, they ultimately are the ones who sold the company by voting for it. And so uh, the, the transition to Conic was driven by that sale. Uh, we were always building a nickel position. You know, inside of Cobalt 27, it may have been as high as 40% of the NAV was nickel. So, you know, we've always had this view around nickel, and, and you can even see that in the, the acquisition of Ramu, which is mm-hmm. really in the first instance, a nickel stream, and then in the second instance, a cobalt, you know, a cobalt um, revenue source. Right. So we've always had this view, but in particular around the acquisition, you know, that was really driven by an investor who came into the market and purchased, and, and then it got put to shareholders, and, and they decided to sell. Right, but the, but the board made a recommendation to you guys were, yeah. you did your assessment, but you got independent assessment, as I, I, I read, so, but you recommended that the, the sale happened. Well, we recommended putting it to shareholders. Ultimately, um, as a fiduciary of the company, if if someone brings a premium bid to the board, and you know you're in in a declining market, and it had been declining for almost a year at that point, you know I really believe that you need to show that liquidity to the shareholders and let them ultimately make the decision. Right. Um, So that was recommended to to shareholders, and you know they were able to make a decision as to what they wanted to do with that liquidity, and they chose they chose to sell. Okay, but you guys did quite well out of it as well. Yeah, I know we we did. So, but that you know I think people will accuse you of saying, well, it was in your interest, not say shareholders' interest. I mean, how would you answer that? Yeah, look, I think uh, you know you learn as you go in this game, and you know one of the things I would do differently is, and will do differently, is structure compensation differently. So, you know, we used a very traditional Canadian compensation structure. Uh, that was disclosed from the IPO on. It never actually changed. Mm. And I think, you know, going forward when structuring compensation, I would probably try to come up with something new and novel, which directly links uh, ultimately the performance of the stock or the performance of the exit in a way that aligns uh, maybe a little bit better management and shareholder returns, which is not actually the case for the standard contract in, in the Canadian public markets. Yeah. And so I think you know, one of the things, one of the criticisms, you know, rightly so, was, okay, you guys made money and a lot of people didn't. I think if, if I was to start over again, I would, and which we are in Conic, you know, kind of create a structure where it's more aligned so you don't have that outcome where there's a perceived idea that you know, one group is making money and another isn't. So, I mean, I read, read through a lot of the 596 <laughs> pages. It's a small yeah, book, yeah, it's a small a, book right? Yeah. Um, it's all detailed there. So people know what they're getting into, or should, if they read it, know what they're getting into. But 
if you don't mind, in summary and brief, how have you structured it for the new entity with regards to It's not been structured yet. It's not, so been, structured it's not yet. been structured yet. Okay. So um, there definitely is not a structure in place yet. And what I would note is, is um, you know, notwithstanding the criticism, ultimately we took a large percentage of that in uh, Conic stock mm. at you know a dollar ninety six kind of share price, and I think it's going to probably open at forty cents. So, you know, we we tried to kind of um, better align our interests with our shareholders, but you know, ultimately, I think you go all the way back to the beginning, and if you could see the end from the beginning, you would structure it completely differently. Well, sure. I mean, we'd certainly avoid a lot of misunderstanding in the marketplace. But you know, again, I would say to investors, retail or institutional, you've got to read those documents. You know what you're getting into and you can vote with your feet, right? Well, I mean, but frankly, on that topic, mm -hmm. really, the, the, you know, the, the contract that we had was the standard Canadian contract. It just okay. sort of worked out that way. And so I think um, it's not simply just reading it, it's also deciding if, if there's a different model that works better or some, if there's a different way of approaching it. Yeah, and that's probably a topic for another day because yeah. I think we, we have this conversation a lot about director's remuneration and, Say so I appreciate there are standards, but some of those those standards need to be kind of held held up to the light. I think a bit more in a lot of companies with a lot of CEOs. But I say conversation for another day, and I understand. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so looking forward, Conic Metals, you're trying to you you've spotted the the nickel uh, opportunity here. Um, you know, also we've we've interviewed quite a few nickel CEOs. Got another one coming in after after this. Um, the future looks bright. But it's it's a kind of erratic commodity, certainly in terms of the pricing, right? So why is it going to last any longer this time than last time? Well, I think I think first of all, Conic when it launches will, will be probably the largest investable mm. uh, nickel pure play on the TSX. Okay, but that's not to say that some of the large miners don't well, have exposure. Large miners in what way? How you it's a pure it? play. Well, I, the way I measure it is the other alternative is share it. Mm -hmm. And you know, Molibay is a great mine, but there are a lot of investors who are restricted to invest in Cuba. So there are a lot of U.S. investors who can't invest in Cuba. So once you move away from that, kind of the only producing, uh, producing nickel story out there that's a pure play. And I think you know, how many? What do we do? How many tons of, of nickel do we do a year? We do sort of. Well, Ramu produces thirty-four thousand yeah, tons so a year. This, we have almost ten percent of that. Right. Uh, so so this is a, a major, uh, a, a major operation yeah. and. I think that's going to be really interesting. You know, the nickel, the nickel companies that are public, by and large, reside on the ASX. Mm. So it's a unique opportunity for Canadian investors yeah. to get exposure. Now, as to price, you know, this move right now is, as we said earlier, is really about Indonesia and, and also a Chinese entity buying some material. This is not the big move. And, and frankly, it's probably going to go a little bit harder, but we will see a pullback. The move that is driven by electric vehicles, I would say, is still a couple years out. Uh, this move right now is not to be confused or conflated with the EV move. And so, and so I think there could be some euphoria that could drive some valuations in a place where they go only to be disappointed. Yeah. And, and I think, I hope, I think if we learned anything from Cobalt, you know, you don't want it to go too hard too quickly and, and then, you know, cause a lot of problems on the downside. And so what I would caution investors is that, you know, right now this is not being driven by electric vehicle demand. Great. The first person that said that. That's fantastic. Because <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, no, it's, it's it, factually right? the case. Absolutely, right? And I think people need to take note of that. So that says there's a second wave potentially, which is also good news. It's all, it's all good news for nickel, it, it would seem. But what are the lessons you've learned from 
cobalt, you mentioned lessons learned, right? So co the, the cobalt was going to take off, next big thing, batteries, etc. Well, cobalt is still story, the next right? big, I mean, cobalt is still going to be big, I, I promise you. It just, but it's, but there, was a, there was a wave, right? Yeah. And so what, what have you learned from your time at Cobalt 27, which you're going to apply to Conic, <laughs> right? Because, you, like you said, you, you learn stuff as you go along. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think one of the things, uh, which may be unexpected, I think one of the things in particular that is important for Conic is the development of a retail shareholder base. Okay. So in Cobalt 27, we had a lot of capital raises in a short period of time, mm -hmm. and it was a heavily institutional stock. And, and, and primarily a lot of these were big hedge funds who were chasing the EV thematic. And you know, as quickly as the EV thematic was in vogue, it went out of vogue and they kind of moved on to whatever the next tech story was. And we didn't have the underlying uh, share register and shareholder base to absorb that move out. Right. So I think one of the things that's important in Conic is to spend a lot more time helping retail shareholders get comfortable, understand the nickel story, and ultimately invest. Mm -hmm. uh, and which is ironic because a lot of times what you probably see are guys with a bunch of retail shareholders and no institutions. Yeah. And I think what, what we're saying that's is nice. like th th that's important. Yeah. But I think developing that uh, that retail network is going to be really important this time. Because actually, and I'll tell you, this is this was an insight that I had at Cobalt 27. Retail shareholders are actually the biggest source of long-term shareholders. That's important, and it's an important insight. You know, most of the capital today yeah. is really on a 12-month cycle. Mm. That's the way they get paid. It's just the way the world has gone. They're in pods at Millennium, whatever the case might be. Mm. And so the nature of that money is just, it's shorter term. And it's driven by macro factors. Sometimes guys have to sell because... You know, an internal dust tells them because the risk premium went up. But but fundamentally, and this was one of the big lessons learned, was retail shareholders actually take a five, ten year view sometimes. And so courting them and helping them understand the story is very critical, I think, to what is, of course, going to be a volatile story because of the nature of electric vehicle adoption and the macro and all these yeah. other things. So, and what else in terms of the, the, the business model? Yeah. Maybe like, okay, so that's on, on the financing side and the financeability and the liquidity and volume. So, forth. in terms of the, the, the model, your streaming royalty company. Have you got that? Did you have that bit cracked at Cobalt 27 or was you no, going to come I, out I, in a look, different I, way? I, I, I think we know how to do deals. I mean, right. I think that's one thing um, we're probably not going to be criticized for. <laughs> you know, we, we did no. plenty of deals. In fact, yeah. we might be criticized yeah. for doing too, too many, many deals. deals. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, think, I think we understand that. And, and in fact, in Conic, uh, we don't anticipate doing any deals anytime soon because there's so much value to unlock in RAM. Okay. And, and Martin can speak to that later. But, but really, this is the best performing HPAL asset in the world, it performs mm -hmm. at over a hundred percent in terms of like the, the nameplate capacity. Okay. And so, you know, what's really important in the coming months is to get that story out mm -hmm. and and let the shareholders find what I view as tremendous value in the stock in the coming six months. Okay. Yeah. Martin. Hello. Hi. We've not met. <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you, Matt. Yeah. Thanks for coming over. Say, Rami. Yes. What is it? So, Ramu is a HPEL, high-pressure acid leach operation that was built by MCC of China in Papua New Guinea. It was commissioned in 2012, and it's been operating since that time. And over the last four years, it's been operating at above nameplate capacity, as Anthony said. What's really important, Matt, is since 1996, there's been uh, less than a dozen HPEL operations that have been designed, constructed, and potentially failed. Uh, a lot of them are not running anymore. Every single one of those projects exploded on the capital budget. 
and none of those projects, with the exception of Ramu, is able to run at the original design capacity. None of them have ever achieved that. So we have an asset here that is not only one of the best HPAL assets for treating laterite ores to make a form of nickel that can go into the steel industry if we want, but is also highly sought after by the battery industry. So there's flexibility. It's also one of the best overall performing assets in the world. Uh, there's some third-party publications that measure performing nickel assets globally, and there's typically 70 that they measure. And there's a line consistently called the bottom quartile for cost. RAMU is consistently within that bottom quartile. So that, that, that gives us an asset, as Anthony says, that we've got a long life there, we've got resources there beyond 20 years, we've got a great partner operating it. We're in a very good jurisdiction if you look at some of the other jurisdictions globally. Uh, PNG has a great relationship with Australia, PNG has a great relationship with China, we have a great relationship with them. So we're just looking forward to unlocking, as Anthony said, a lot of that value. Okay, fantastic. Now I want you to deal with, see something you talked about was this ethical mining mm -hmm. in uh, DRC, Congo. Um, there are some stories in the marketplace with regard to deep sea waste uh, being deposited by the Ram Ramu uh, project. Right. What do you know about that? So I can tell you that all HPAL operations generate a non-usable byproduct. Right. It's typically an iron oxide and it could be acidic. What Ramu does though is they neutralize their waste to pH 7 and 8, which is the same pH as the ocean. They have a fully permitted, fully licensed deep sea tailings management system, which means that they are allowed to discharge that solution at pH 8 well into beyond any reef, any coral, into the deep ocean. All other HPAL operations have some sort of uh, license of this. We, we've had this licensed by the PNG government. We follow the strict adherence on that. We have it independently audited. We inspect the pipeline every five years thoroughly and we do an annual inspection on the discharge and we've never exceeded or broken the rules that we are operating under. So anybody who says, you know, you've got this issue, I'd like to see some facts because the facts I've seen has shown me that we have not exceeded or or been outside of the bounds of our tailings management uh, permit ever. And that's all independently verified? All independently verified. We do have people there now that are working with the uh, Chinese operator because we want to get the facts out. Okay. So yeah, and I think that's, that's important, you know. Uh, a lot of the media was like, completely inaccurate. I mean, the, the thing restarted last Friday. You know, it's, it's, and, and, like, but no one, you know, Reuters isn't writing about that. Like, where's right. the article? You know, mm -hmm. you write this sensational article and then, oh wait, like everybody forgot to follow up. So I just think that, um, you know, it's an easy target because, you know, it's in a place where a lot of people haven't been. It's with, a, a, you know, an operator that people don't know the management. So it's kind of low-hanging fruit right. for, for journalists to write some irresponsible articles because it simply factually weren't true. So it's... It's kind of interesting. It's, it's come out... I'm not taking a side here. I'm just pointing out that we, I sent a uh, clip by an Australian TV... Uh, broadcaster where protesters were outside a com uh, mining conference in Melbourne yeah. stopping mining executives getting into the conference I mean pretty violent in places a lot of you know police deployed arrest made etc do you think and I think we talked about this last time was about you know the the, the you know eth ethical mining and the the misconceptions or conceptions in the marketplace where people get very passionate about their views now some of it based on facts some of it not do you think the what's the mining industry? Look, look, do about there's that, no question. Right? The biggest, the biggest 
um, kind of talking point. You saw Rio Tinto last week. The biggest talking point in mining right now is ESG. Yeah. It is the biggest talking point. But something that you know your listeners and everyone needs to appreciate is like look around the room you're in. You know, yeah. everything you see is basically mined or grown. And so, so long as we as a society, as a global society, are going to continue to consume, we're going to continue to mine. Mm. So I don't think the conversation should be around should we mine or shouldn't we mine. The conversation should be about how do we mine ethically, how do we do it in an environmentally friendly way, or at least in a, a way that's friendly enough to sustain the environment, because mining is not going away unless consumption is going away. I hear you. So I, the, the question and discussion is around the ethics of it. You've answered me very clearly, Martin, and said we we followed every single guideline, permit, license that we we're obliged to, and we will report back on that, and it's independently verified. Okay, so that's great. You're not necessarily investing in anything coming up or buying anything soon, but you will do. So the ethics is still a big part. Of Let what, me give you an example. I, yeah. I, so the most interesting junior, I think, in the world in nickel mm. is Turnigan. It's owned by Giga. Mm. Okay, Turnigan is you know a couple billion Which tons. You, I personally have bought. I mean, right, personally okay. bought. I mean, like, just for just, just to that. Yeah, for yeah. full disclosure, I think I've bought up to four percent of it now with my own money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in British Columbia. It's you know carbon neutral. Uh, Going to be completely ESG compliant. You know, it can be operated with electric vehicles. It's completely green. It will be fueled by by um, hydroelectric power. And so one of the reasons that we like it is that it checks every ESG compliance box. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know, Martin, you've, you've actually um, spent a lot of time on yeah. looking at that. I don't know what your view of it is. Yeah, so for disclosure, I'm a director of the company too, and I'm also a large shareholder. And we interviewed them. For full disclosure, we interviewed them three weeks yeah. ago. No, <laughs> so but, I mean, I mean, yeah. we actually bought our yeah. shares. We yeah, literally yeah. physically bought them. There's no free shares. Yeah. Like, we yeah. bought these shares because we believe in it. Yeah. So, so in terms of ethical mining, Anthony hit it on the head. When you look at, if I'm going to invest in a new nickel project, mm-hmm. do I want to invest in an HPAL project that's going to be on the ocean that I'm going to have a lot of issues with locals about what do you do with the tailings, what do you do with the mining, things like that. Or you can look at a massive sulfide deposit in in British Columbia, and Anthony said exactly, we have access to hydroelectric power, so we kind of say, well, there's no CO2 generation there. We're looking, and and the future, all mining companies are eventually going to be using electric-powered mining fleets, so you're not going to get any CO2 um, Or hydrogen, or hydrogen. hydrogen. But the third thing that we discovered with the Turnigan property is the silicate residue, so you, when you dig up the ore and you separate the nickel from the residue, some people call it tailings, but it's residue, the silicate res- residue is actually a CO2 sink in its absorber. Excuse me. And this has been proven at some other mine sites in the world that have realized that their residue is absorbing CO2 from the environment. So doing Turnigan right, we will actually be a carbon sink not an emitter. So we will be able to sell carbon credits under the Canadian system mm. as a byproduct. So I think to young retail investors looking for, I want to buy my EV and I want to know that the energy I'm getting from it is green, but I also want to know it was produced in a green way. We can say, listen, the nickel and cobalt in your batteries came from this mine, which it has 10 to 1. And this mine is a zero carbon footprint mine. What do you think of that? So this is really exciting. and. and it kind of comes back to this whole thing around ESG investing. And you know, one thing which is important about nickel, and really, you know, if we talked about cost curves, ultimately drives nickel price, mm-hmm. is one of the best ways to destroy value in mining since at least the 80s mm-hmm. has been, frankly, it's been building nickel mines like Ravensthorpe. How much money did they did Valley blow at Gora? How many billion dollars? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Murren, Murren. Murren, Murren. Uh, 
a Talbavar. And we're talking billions of dollars yeah, in yeah, yeah. So, so you know, Goro. and this is because of HPAL, right? It's, yeah. it's very hard to dial in that Absolutely. process. And so what's interesting about turning it is it's a sulfide, so you can actually build it for five to $700 million. Right. And so, you know, that's interesting and exciting, and it kind of goes with this whole thing around ESG that we're huge proponents of. I mean, personally, I, we've talked about this before. Yeah. I'm an environmentalist. I mean, I love the outdoors. Uh, I love getting back to nature. Well, you know, we go to Alaska every year and, and spend time in the wilderness. So this is something which is also close to my heart, and I feel passionately uh, about, first of all, the need for mining, because, in fact, we live in a world that consumes but the need to mine in an ethical way, not only for the environment, but for also the local people mm -hmm. that live in that area. Okay, I hear you. So, but let's, let's, let's kind of bring this back to you guys, because I think we've, we've kind of segued off there into, into a few other companies, but um, who else are you invested into? At the moment, what, what are they? Because we talk about so, various so royalty streams. You're talking about got. so Conic. We have a, uh, a royalty on Turnigan. Yeah. Which is Giga, and we have a royalty on Dumont, which is really owned by Waterton, which is a private equity firm. Yeah, I think yeah. eighty percent or something. So, yes. those are the two main ones, and then we have a couple uh, in Australia, which are probably earlier stage. Right. Okay. And, so, and those are both, to be clear, they're royalties. So we have the nickel and cobalt exposure. Okay. So, looking forward in the nickel market, um, you've explained that kind of quite clearly to us. What are the companies that you think? Just get a, get a bit of your insight about the market. What are, what are the companies that you think are going to be worth investing into, which you don't have? Okay, in, in, okay. So look, I think the answer is it depends on what spot in the market you're looking at. Uh, clearly, clearly, like if you look at uh, Independence Group in Australia, mm. um, or even you know Norilsk, but Norilsk has some other exposures. Those are mm -hmm. bigger, more liquid names. Yeah. And for me, whenever I own, um, whenever I like a commodity, I like to own a basket. And I like to have, I take an approach of having some very liquid names, some kind of intermediate producers, and then some small caps. Mm -hmm. So if I was constructing a portfolio, I would own some independents and some Norilsk. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, you know, on, on the kind of that end of it, independents moving down into the mid cap range. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would own nickel mines in Australia. Yep. Um, they've been very successful uh, in, in getting started, and, and you can see that in the share price. And then moving down, I would own, um, I would actually own Giga for Turnigan. And personally, uh, you know, I like Sherit. Um, there's a lot of torque there, yeah. you know, so it's, it's really sitting under a mountain of debt. But that nickel price runs, and they start repaying that debt. So just as as a retail investor, that's potentially interesting. You need to be a little bit careful because some people aren't allowed to own that. But that's you know, each yeah. person has to check that out. But I would actually own a basket. I, I don't personally ever like owning a single name. I like owning kind of a handful of names mm -hmm. that have leverage to a given commodity. Okay. Agree with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Yes. <laughs> uh, my own personal view, though, too, because of my technical background and, and thorough knowledge of the market, is I I would also look to some other names that are either very close to production or in production, and the asset is a high quality asset. Okay. So, so there's a couple other there that Anthony didn't mention, but we're pretty much along. Yeah. So there's a couple other assets. I really like the uh, Talvavar mine, which is owned by Terrafami in mm -hmm. Finland. Mm -hmm. I think that that mine is operating very well. It, it, it took a long time to get it going, but it's also quite environmentally friendly. And I like some smaller assets. There's one in Brazil called Brazilian Nickel, which is experimenting with a heap leach. They're yeah. at a demonstration scale. I think they have a good thing going too, and it's, uh, it's an interesting play, and I'm watching them very closely to see where they end up. Okay, Horizonte, do you know them? Uh, I know the name, Horizonte, yes. They've got a couple of projects in Brazil. That's right, yeah. that's right. No views. 
Uh, I worked at one of their projects uh, over 20 years ago. <laughs> no, no current okay. years. <laughs> yeah. 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 But 10 years. Um, okay, so let's finish up, finish up with um, Connick, just in, some, in terms of some of the numbers. Okay, you've, you've had, well, up to 48 million bucks of debt went down. Yeah, there's no debt on the company. So no debt, right? And then you've got five million bucks yeah. to play with. Now you're not making any acquisitions. You're not really doing too too much on that front. But five million bucks is it's not a lot of money. But is it enough? I think it is. I mean, first of all, we're all shareholders. You know, I think management owns eight, eight to ten percent. Eight, yeah, nine percent of the company. I mean, mm. you know, I think our interests are highly aligned with shareholders' interests. Mm -hmm. right. The last thing we want is any like dilutionary uh, capital raises sure. or anything like that. So I think that's the first aspect of it. The second aspect of it is like, the GNA is not really, you know, there's a, it's a small team. It's Martin, myself, Justin, and Connor, you know, yeah. uh, you know and then in, in, in Australia, we've got Craig and, and one other person. So it's a very small team. Right, what's the GNA gonna be? Do you know, have you got any sense of that yet? No, but I think this, the, the $5 million lost this years. Years. Not, yeah, years like with an two S. Two years. Couple years. You know. Couple of years, yeah. okay. So, so, and you know, maybe, maybe three, it just kind of depends, right? So. Um, but what we foresee is, you know, we never really had time to tell the Ramu story to the market. And so, you know, very quickly after that deal closed, we got into the situation uh, around, around the bid in the market. Mm -hmm. And now I think it's time to really help everyone see the value. You know, once we're able, we're going to buy more of it uh, because we just believe that, you know, we believe that even if you book it at cost, meaning the cost that we paid for it, so the cost that Cobalt 27 paid for the asset, in a lower nickel environment, mm -hmm. you know, we're still a double from here. That just gets back to kind of where, what, where we paid for it. Mm -hmm. And nickels move materially, so we think that the value is actually much higher than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's really our job to get that out, help people understand any of the questions they have around the production, around environmental, mm -hmm. around the country, and you know, that's what we're going to be doing yeah. over the next kind of you know six months. But do you think that's going to be that's going to be enough? Because obviously you know you did the deal with Cobalt Twenty Seven. People have taken a big chunk of, in cash. They got given shares at I don't know what price. Can you remind me? Uh, well, the the effectively the deal closed and the share price on the last tick was four forty. Right. They got four dollars of cash. So they the the, the implication right. is that on day one the shares will trade around forty cents. Right. Okay. Okay. Um. So. Again, there are people who were shareholders who, who voted, or even if they didn't vote it, they're, they're sitting on some stock of Conic and either they're going to dump it quickly or they're going to go along for the ride because they think there's something in the nickel story, right? So that, that, it's all, all obvious stuff. What are you planning on doing? Because you, you've, you've got the royalties you've got, you've got the assets you've got. How do you? Yeah, what's it? I mean, look, the, just the, the, yeah, yeah, okay. Look, yeah. The, 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 next, the next big moment to unlock value is mm. really around cash flow. Right. And, you know, historically, there's been. A, so the way that it works is that when Ramu was being built, the underlying company lent money at the joint venture level to fund it for Highlands. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a non recourse loan that sits there that's sort of paid out of cash flow. Right. And as soon as that loan is paid down. When's uh, that? You know, that, that loan, if we don't do anything, takes two years, probably. Okay. If we do nothing, okay? And if, and if nickel price stays flat. If yeah. it goes up, it's faster, right? Yeah. So our job is to bring forward cash flow by creatively paying down that loan, or mm -hmm. what has historically been the case is negotiating a cash mm -hmm. split, such that, that, you know, maybe only 
70%, I'm just making up a number, right? I'm not, I'm not guiding anyone here, but, but a certain percentage goes to paying down the loan and a certain percentage okay. comes back. And in that way, you can immediately start talking about a dividend or a cash, a share buyback. Right. So, so I, think, I think unlocking value is really around um, that asset and, and bringing it into free cash flow, bringing the Topco, Conic, into free cash flow positive. Okay, so it's an interesting point there, right? So what do you guys do while you're sitting around for the next two, three years not buying anything, not doing deals? Which I know you get out, but you're not doing deals. Yeah. So what are you doing? You're doing things like we'll restructure the, the debt repayment. Per portion, We're unlocking. We're unlo- I, think, I think the key, what the else? key, the key, the key to unlocking tremendous value. One is telling the story because no one knows the story. Mm-hmm. That immediately will rewrite it. And the second thing that, that can be done immediately, and by immediately I mean this, these things take months, but but relatively quickly, mm-hmm. is figuring out how to unlock that cash flow because now you are free cash flow, you have free cash flow, and you can completely transform the company. And I think that's 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 where you can really unlock that. What does that mean? How long does that take? I mean, you, you, the well, historically it's been parts, the case, right? but what historically highlights has had that split. Yeah. So it's really, we haven't been able to, we have not been able to even have that conversation for seven months while we've been yeah. inside of this deal. Right, okay. So they, they still retain a, a small portion of the, of this going forward, do they? Who? Highlands. No, we own Highlands. You, you own it Highlands, yeah, Highlands yeah. is our subsidiary. Complete, complete subsidiary, okay, yeah. fine. So, so what are those conversations you have internally to say, hey, we need to unlock some value for shareholders? I mean, great, we're gonna renegotiate a bit of that. We're gonna do what? What do you, what do, you do for the next three years? But we're not talking about three years. We're talking about mm. like what happens in the next. Well, look, the, the balance sheet looks completely different. Okay. Like now, when you have free cash flow, um, your balance sheet is not one that that requires dilution to do anything. Got it. Right. right? Like I mean, I, just just by way of example. And by the way, you know, at today's prices, um, that and if it goes any higher, I mean, that loan gets paid back dramatically quicker. And also, I think one of the things, and this is not to, to skip around here, but people don't understand is today, you know. The joint venture interest is around eight point five percent. Eight point five. As soon as that loan is paid off, mm-hmm. we actually go from eight point five percent to just over eleven percent. Okay. So the interest actually expands, and and that cash flow wall that comes in is significant and material, and you know even in a worst case, uh, that that happens in the next twenty four months, hopefully, right? And right. so that will completely transform the company once again. Uh, and there's tremendous optionality around this, right? So in addition to to those things, you know, probably three or four years out, there's an expansion at the mine site, which we have the option to participate in. So all these things really make us the you know, one of the most important, if not the most important, pure play on the TSX for nickel. So if an investor wants to express a nickel view on an asset that is producing and has a you know seven-year track record of production, yeah, this is the only one, right? It, it, this one, or I should say, share it. Like those are the two, really. Mm-hmm. And Sherrod, by the way, has an oil and gas business. It has a bunch of other businesses. This is all we have. And so that is unique. And I think in the face of a nickel tape that only gets more interesting in the coming years, like we're going to be an alternative for, in particular, Canadian investors. And I think one of, well, just to answer your question, one of the immediate things we do is we engage with our Chinese partner on a much deeper level now because for the last six months, as Anthony says, we've been focused on this transaction. We closed the Highlands transaction at the end of 2018, and then almost early into 2019, this transaction hit the table. So, you know, as a small team, all of management was working on this. We now have the opportunity to sit down with our Chinese partner and engage with them on what do we want Ramu to look at? How do we leverage the fact that we are the best HPL operation in the world? How do we make that better? How do we leverage the fact that we're not getting our nickel or cobalt from the Congo? You're here, 
and the fact that battery producers want our product and actually are looking to, to pay a premium for it. And they actually look to us because uh, being a Chinese business, they're quite integrated through some of their operations that they've never operated outside on a global scale. And Cobalt 27, iconic, iconic, we bring to that the fact that, listen, we have a team that's got a global presence. We're here at LME Week. I'm actually leaving from here, going to China and meeting with them. And then I'll, we'll all be back there again in December. So that's the first step is you got to get your Chinese partners engaged, which they are, understand what we want to do, and then they will support that movement. Okay. So again, I find that kind of interesting. So you're, you think you can do things which Highland wasn't doing before? I think we can bring more options in front of the Chinese, which Highlands didn't have the opportunity because um, Ramu was still in a late ramp up stage, early stability stage. So over the last two years, Ramu has absolutely demonstrated the phenomenal track record. And Ramu was just starting to get in, uh, Ramu was just starting to enter that period while Highlands was still in control. And also, and also Highlands, you wouldn't know the history, but mm. prior to us doing a deal with them, funny enough, they actually had a big shareholder uh, someone tried to take them out. One of the trading houses partnered with someone else and made a run at the company. And so, you know, they had a year where management was completely distracted, distracted yeah. and, 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 and they ultimately prevailed and mm -hmm. were able to fend it off. But, you know, the story has not been told. And, and Highlands, and to be fair, like, you know, they were uh, under the gun there and were unable to tell the story as well. And so it just needs to be told and it hasn't been told. Uh, there are definitive things like Martin said that we can do, but but actually it is important just to have people understand the asset because mm. this isn't a lot of the stories that you know, I watch I watch your uh, your interviews. A lot of your stories are talking about a someday mine. Mm -hmm. No, this is this is going to be producing for forty or fifty or sixty years, and it's mm -hmm. already producing. Mm -hmm. And so this is uh, this is an operating business. Yeah, we do be a lot of sort of someday mines. Uh, you know, people Giga being one of them. Um, where we're trying to understand, investors, retail investors are trying to understand who to believe, who can get there, who is just going through the motions, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you made a few points today about you know portfolios and what, what type of companies, et cetera. So I do, I do appreciate that. Um, well, I, I think that's a great reintroduction to your business. I wish you well for the future with, with Connick. Love to meet you as well, Martin. Nice meeting you. Um, there's a lot of good things in there. I'm, you know, I'm sorry some of it was dealing with some con uh, conception, uh, misconceptions in the marketplace, should I say. Um, but you know, I think we'd love to kind of stay in touch, tell us what's going on as things progress. As you start telling this story, I'm sure we'll uh, meet again. Yeah, thanks so, for having us as always. It's great to have yeah, you. Appreciate it. Thank you, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks Cheers. very much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.